0: Well, James chapter 5, we've come to the last section of the book of James. This final text provides insight into the nature of genuine living faith that marks all true believers as James has been talking all the way through, identifying those marks of true believers. Such people will definitely be marked by a life of prayer. Now, there are formal times of prayer, But there are also those times of prayer that the believer should be engaged in continually. Prayer should be the habit of their life and all aspects of their life. If you only pray before you go to bed at night and over your food, and that's about all you pray, and maybe on Sunday morning, I don't think that that's really what the Christian life looks like in the area of prayer. And that'll become clearer. True believers have the habit of praying about all aspects of their lives, all the circumstances that they face, whether good or bad. And they bring the things that they're engaged in before the Lord in prayer. In fact, it's this kind of constant turning to God in all circumstances that gives meaning, unity, and empowerment to the Christian life. It's what really kind of marks us out from those who just may profess to be believers, but those who have a vibrant life with God through Christ. Such prayer shows that vital personal relationship with God. Even as Hebrews 11, we're in Hebrews today a little bit. Hebrews 11 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen. You see, prayer begins and ends with a trust that God, who cannot be seen, exists, and that he hears, considers, and answers our prayers according to his will. So it's it's not wrong to say that prayer constitutes the very heart of a vital Christian faith. And I say vital Christian faith, true genuine believers, etc., to mark us off from those who merely profess or who are religious or who attend a church, but it's basically a Sunday religion. And prayer begins and ends with God, who we can't see. I'm often amazed at our faith because we sing of the blood of someone. <laughs> That's weird, right? We talk about how grateful we are for the shed blood of Jesus Christ, a sacrifice on a cross. It's also very strange that we pray to someone that we cannot see, with all the intent and, and, and belief that he hears what we're saying. Well, the audience to whom James was addressing this letter to did not lack a need for prayer because their lives had been turned upside down. What they once possessed, they no longer owned. Who they might have been was now all changed, and those relationships of family, heritage, and commerce were now mostly just memories, I think, of many people in the Ukraine who are experiencing this, maybe many believers. They were experiencing persecution, slander, and almost complete marginalization because of their faith. Into this context, James writes to his readers and gives them instructions as to how they should handle themselves before the Lord so let's look at James chapter 5 and the final verses verses 13 through 20 is anyone among you suffering then he must pray is anyone cheerful he's also to sing praises is anyone among you sick Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, Let him know that he who turns the sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these final verses in James, they seem kind of disconnected, and yet they are very connected. And Father, we thank you for James, the brother of Jesus, and how he wrote these truths early on, encouraging the church, made up of many Jews who had converted, but also a mixed multitude made up of professors who were following the crowd and had not truly yet believed. Father, open these verses up to us today in a way that's fresh and new, and let us be encouraged, convicted, and challenged, Lord, in a new way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I need to just go into a few things before we get to the text this morning, and there are some, just a couple of thoughts that I want you to keep in mind. There's at least three directives toward prayer in this section, okay? The first one is to pray for yourself, verse 13. The second directive is to call the elders to pray for you if you're sick, that's 14 and 15, And then in verse 16, there's the call to pray for one another. So there's three instances where we're challenged to pray. And then there are at least four different situations listed that warrant prayer. The first one is when you're faced with affliction, verse 13. Or when you're really experiencing good times. That's also in verse 13. Times when you are weak and weary, and I'll get into that in quite a bit of depth in verses 14 and 15, and times when they were in sin, if they sin, verse 16. And so we see these, these calls to prayer and these times for prayer, need for prayer, and prayer is kind of the glue that holds this whole passage together. It's a very interesting passage. So the first thought that I want you to consider is we need to turn to God in every situation of life. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises or pray. Singing praises is prayer. There are two extremes in life, suffering and Satisfaction. And they call for two different responses, endurance and enjoyment. Now, this type of speech has a name. It's called a merism. Okay? It's used in many places in the Bible. Heaven and earth are used to express the totality of creation, aren't they? Another merism is the tongues of men and the tongues of angels. It's a merism. And it's used to express the totality of language. We've also heard of enduring and enjoying in this verse, and they are an example, two opposites, side by side, to show us a spectrum of the entire human experience. Most of us live in between those two, right? The mundane. But the truth of the matter is, is James is talking about the entirety of one's life when he says, is anyone among you suffering Or is anyone among you cheerful, knowing that he'd catch everybody, right? Note that each end of the spectrum of human experience is exactly what James is talking about. And he says, in that extremity of human condition, whatever it be, good or bad, pray, turn to God. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. See that in Philippians 4.6. In Colossians 4.2, it says, devote yourselves to prayer. Keep an alert with an attitude of thanksgiving. Prayer and thanksgiving kind of go together. Gratefulness is always to be the mark of the Christian. And we have to confess, there are days when we're not grateful, Right? When we're murmuring and complaining, it shouldn't be the mark of the Christian. So first, I want to say, turn to God in every situation of life. Secondly, turn to God in weakness and weariness, is verse 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church, and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil? In the name of the Lord and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now this is a real difficult couple of verses. There are a lot of interpretations from simple interpretations taking it at face value to far-fetched ones that are plausible. The problem is, is you have someone who is sick here. Now don't conflate or combine this he who is sick with, verse 13, someone who is suffering. Sickness may cause suffering, but this is a separate case, and I want you to keep verses 14 and 15 separate from verse 13. Yes, it takes place in the entirety of life, I, I confess that, but we're talking about a different situation in verses 14 and 15. You see, the suffering that is in verse 13 referred to suffering in a general sense, mental distress, possibly emotional affliction, or maybe both combined. But the word sick has a completely distinct meaning in verse 14. It literally means to be without strength, to be very, very weak. In the book of Acts, that same word is used seven times, and Six out of the seven times refer to sickness as physical illness. You see, some are prone to take this word sick here and to just flatten it out and make it very general. I think it really does speak to physical illness. In verses 14 and 15, the English word sick is used twice in many, in many um, translations. But they're two different Greek words. The translators tended to use sick for both of them, the English sick. Astethneo Asthetneo is any one among you sick? And that Greek word means physically ill. The second Greek word is a different word, kamno, not even close. Kamno. And kamno means to be weary intensely fatigued. When you bring these two words together, because they are in close proximity, what you have, and you need to understand, that this is a severe weakness that's being described. It's a unique situation. It's not just general suffering. And we know it's not just normal sickness, because we're uh, told later verses that we're to pray for one another in those kind of situations. This is unique. And it calls for a unique answer to the problem. That word "comno" means, uh, in the Koine Greek, it was used to describe a book that is threadbare by frequent use. It reminds me of the illustration of the way, uh, I think it was Bilbo, maybe Frodo, felt as as butter was spread too thin on, on toast. Okay? You're threadbare. You ever feel that? I, I've... I've I can relate to this. I've been threadbare. I've felt just very, very weary. But then when you put it together with that first word sick, you've got a dire situation. This is very serious, what is taking place here. Possibly even sickness unto death. This is a very unique situation and not a general type of suffering. And therefore, the matter of how James teaches the church to deal with this situation is very unique. Let him call for the elders of the church. Isn't it interesting? It's the only place in James where he uses the word church. And James was written very early in the history of the church. But he says, the church, Ecclesia. It's it's wonderful. I, I love the church and I love seeing mentions of it in scripture. Let him call for the elders of the church and that brings a little bit of clarification to the interpretation that I'll present to you that this is very unique. It's an exception to the normal state of things where a believer would pray for themselves or pray for someone who's sick in the church. This situation is dire and therefore the elders of the church are to be called for. They are called by the one who is in need because The one who is in need is unable to go to the elders. That tells you something. They're pretty sick. And they call for the elders. Now, these elders, when they come to the sick person that has called to them, they're told that they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. To pray. That is the primary verb. Uh, Verb in this this clause, to pray, anointing is not the primary, but a lot of interpretations would really focus on the anointing of oil as though it's some special thing. Now let me tell you right here, um, we as elders do anoint with oil and pray over those who call for us to do so. I'll tell you about that in a minute because I'm sure some of you are shocked that I actually said elders here anoint with oil and pray. But we do. This phrase is one that has caused no end of debate as to what James had in mind. The Catholic Church takes this point of Scripture as a proof text for their sacrament of extreme unction or the last rites. And I use illustrations from the Catholic Church because I grew up in a Catholic Church. And many of these things are very familiar to me. And I just want you to understand where some of these ideas come from. It is a sacrament. It's one of the seven sacraments. And uh, when someone is close to death, they're to call the priest to exercise uh, extreme unction or last rites. And this is where they get that from. And it's only a priest that can administer the sacrament of extreme unction. And it is to prepare the one who is dying for heaven. Never mind the fact that the text says that if the prayers of the elders is answered, God will raise them up. So they kind of have, they're a little off on that, right? Because if they raise up, they're not preparing their soul to go to heaven. And that's what extreme is all about. Oil and anointing with oil is used in two distinct ways in the Bible. The first is seen in ceremonial use, and I'm sure you're thinking back to the Old Testament where they anointed kings. they also anointed special artisans for work on the temple, and they were gifted. It marked them out as someone who was gifted to do a specific thing. But a second anointing with oil is more mundane and, and pedestrian, if you will, takes place in the New Testament in a medicinal usage where olive oil would be used to rub on a person as a cure-all for ailments. And um, I can agree with that. I love olive oil. I think we should rub olive oil all over ourselves and we'd be much healthier. But only if it's pure virgin olive oil from Italy. Okay? Okay. There are two examples of this kind of anointing found in the Gospels. The first is Mark 6.13, where the twelve were sent out by Christ to begin to serve. And it says, and, when they were cast, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So the anointing was with sick people and they were being healed. The second is in the parable of the good Samaritan who anointed the man that was attacked by robbers. In verse 10, 34 of Luke, it says a good Samaritan bandaged the man up and poured oil and wine on the wounds. Okay, so oil anointing was part of the culture and it was used in a medicinal sense. Luke, uh, Matthew 6, 13, we read the disciples anointed with oil, many sick. And so they were also casting out demons. Now, there's a little bit of transition that takes place here from then until now. But I want to talk about the part of prayer, because that's the primary verb in the clause that we first read. This is the next troublesome phrase. Some take this as God's guarantee that the physically sick person will be healed based on the faith of the elders who pray over the sick one. That's a little bit of pressure for the elders, right? May happen, may not happen, doesn't happen. It was the elders' lack of faith. Or God forbid, the lack of faith of the person that called for the elders to pray over them because that's what a lot of healers would say. Oh, he didn't just have enough faith to be healed. I don't believe either of those. In the case that we need to ask if that's the truth, we need to ask why Paul didn't pray over his own dear son in the faith Timothy, but rather directed him to use ordinary medicinal things to handle his frequent ailments in 1 Timothy 5:23. The medicinal use was a little bit of wine and not to drink water anymore. Okay? For his many ailments. This is not a guarantee but it leaves a result with God's will. Look at the verses. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore, some translations have save, will save the sick one and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. The Lord will raise him up. It all goes back to trusting in the one and only. It is up to God. If the Lord wills, James taught in 4.15, we will live and also do this or that. It's the Lord. It's not the elders. It's not the prayer of the elders. It's not the faith of the elders. And it's not the prayer of the sick one. And it's not the faith of the sick one. It all goes back to the Lord. So I want to give you five things to keep in mind regarding physical illness. Because I know some of you in this room have probably been to healing ceremonies and, and services. Maybe you asked for prayer in this way. And I just want to say five things concerning physical illness. Number one, all healing is by God. But he can and often uses secondary causes to bring health. For the believer, faith must always be in God alone, not in the healer, not in the instruments used to heal, but in God alone. Mere medicine and doctors cannot receive full confidence without God. You can't put your hope in medical science, people. Okay, We stand or fall before God and God alone, and we need to understand that. In 2 Chronicles 16, 12 through 13, there's an illustration of this that's very interesting. It talks about Asa. And in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet, probably gout. And his malady was severe, and it can be. Yet in his distress, it says, he did not seek the Lord, but physicians. He went for the medical science of the situation totally left the Lord out of it. And the next verse says, so Asa rested with his fathers. (laughs) He died. He died. Now we'll get into that chastening that leads to death, because I do believe that God sometimes with his children will chasten them unto death because they're unrepentant. But that's for a little bit later. So, first, all healing is by God. Second, sometimes the use of medical assistance turns out to be worthless and even detrimental. I go to Luke 8 for this, where we hear of the woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years. And she had spent all of her livelihood, all of her money, all of her savings on physicians and could not be healed by any. So all the medicine in the world, all the science in the world didn't do any good. And she came from behind Jesus and touched the border of his garment. And immediately her flow of blood stopped. Trust God. Don't trust medicine. I'm not saying don't use medicine. Don't use medicine without God. Don't go to doctors without God. Always include God in the equation. Number three, and yet God can and does use medicinal methods to bring about healing. 1 Timothy 5.23, the the one I referred to where Paul told his son in the faith, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now we all realize that wine was grape juice. I get that, so we just won't go there. But it was medicinal, So the grape juice helped calm his stomach. I'm teasing, you know. I just want you to know I'm being facetious there. (laughs) Number four, sometimes illness is a result of God, or excuse me, a result of sin or God's chastisement on sin. But let a man examine himself, we read in Corinthians, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this reason, many of you are weak, it's the same word as in James, for sick. Many of you are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Now, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight through 30, the Greek word for weak is the same one as in James 14, for sick. Paul's use of the word sleep is a euphemism for death. You know, I think there's things that are going on in life that we don't give God credit for. That we don't realize that he's behind the scenes doing his sovereign will in the lives of people. An early death may be one of those things for a Christian. Number five, all illness cannot be laid at the feet of an individual sin. So having just said that God can chasten unto death, you need to realize that we can't put all illness, physical illness, at the feet of sin. Because in John 9, 1-3, through 3, Jesus answered this question for us. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, our teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither. I don't think they were expecting that answer, but that's a great answer. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him, John 9, 1 through 3. Isn't that interesting that the works of God should... So God knew this man would be born. He would be born blind and he would run into Jesus Christ who would make him see. He's so great. He's so far beyond our recognition and understanding. (laughs) He's doing things we have even got a clue about. And that's why I say we need to turn to God in every circumstance of our lives don't be dissuaded from that. Thirdly, turn to God in sin. When sin is there and present, turn to God. I want you to look at the latter part of verse 15. It says, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. In the original it says, and if he has committed sins, it will be be forgiven him. You might have a little marginal note there. It will be forgiven him. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now here James introduces, he's kind of switching gears again. He's moving away from the elders being called to pray and he's moving into the rank and file believer in the church. And it's a new component. He means that The elders prayer in a dire situation is one situation and in believers confessing their sin and praying for one another is a separate situation. And I think conflating or bringing those two together as so many that interpret this passage of scripture do confuses the whole thing. James is very general. He's talking to an entire church like we just saw at the Previous verse. And he's addressing a number of situations, but it all has to do with prayer, and it all has to do with sin, and it all has to do with God and how he deals with sickness, how he deals with sin. And he calls us to prayer. So we see here a very interesting situation. In the case of the one who called for the elders, and the elders anointing him with oil and praying uh, for him. It is the prayer of the elders that affect the change. It's not the prayer of the amount or the amount of faith of the sick person. We talked about that. It's not the power of the elders, but of God who answered the prayer. Now, if the sickness was due to sin, we've got a whole different thing going here. Because if the sickness was due to sin... And the context bears out that it had to be a sin that was a protracted persistence in openly, knowingly, and recklessly sinning. And this is God's judgment on the sin. And if the one who is almost ready to die because of their sin and God's chastening on them calls the elders to come and pray for him, if that's what was behind the, the illness... A chastening to bring that sinner back to God's fold. If he sinned, it says, if he recognizes, confesses, and repents of his sin, which would all be demonstrated by the fact that he called the elders to pray, it's kind of like, I give up. I see that I've been wrong in my assumptions here of living the way that I've lived, and he calls the elders for help. That's his admission. That's his trusting God and the leaders that God put in place. The word of God assures them, it, not they will be forgiven, it, singular. Why does he say that? Well, because I I think it goes back to the fact that it was a state of reckless, intentional sin. The person who was nigh unto death with sickness motivated him to call the elders, but it is good for believers to confess their sins to one another and to pray for one another. So, in a sense, there's a little bit of an overlay here, but at the same time, James is changing his direction now and talking to the rank and file in the church as well. Okay, the fourth point is the effective prayer can accomplish much. And this, I think, is directed not to elders but it's directed specifically toward the entire church, elders included. Verses 16 and 17. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And then he's going to use Elijah as an example. An effective prayer. James uses a very graphic illustration of the story of Elijah and those within the audience James addressed, many of who were unsaved, you realize that, they struggled with faith. Just think of James' message all the way through his, his, his book. They struggled with faith. They struggled with anger. They struggled with good deeds, favoritism, jealousy, selfish ambition, worldliness, self-centeredness, and oaths. These were the ones that James challenged to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe if some of the believers actually fell into some of these categories and forgot who they were in Christ, they needed to be reminded. But primarily, he was challenging unbelievers. If they would agree with God that they were sinning, if they would confess and repent, then God would forgive them of their sins as well. It's the same for eternal salvation as it is to restoration of a sinning believer, according to this verse here. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. This is talking not so much about standing, but rather about our walk in the Lord. We need to understand who a righteous man is, and that word man is, generally speaking, a righteous person, okay? Okay. A righteous person, the prayer of a righteous person will avail much or will accomplish much. And you might be thinking, no hope for me, right? Because we know we're sinners. All contraire. That's why I say it's not the standing. If we don't understand this, then we don't understand the gospel. The biblical sense of righteousness obviously has nothing to do with our own righteousness, which the Bible declares worthless before God. All of our righteousness are as filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. Christ Jesus became to us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1:30. We don't have a righteousness of our own, but it's derived rather through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on behalf of that faith in Christ. It's an alien righteousness that we stand in, people. It's the righteousness of another. So that wipes out any idea of doing things in order to please God so that He accepts us. We're unacceptable to God. (laughs) Lock, stock, and barrel no matter how many good things you do. No matter if your mother Teresa in Calcutta. If that's all that she was trusting in was the work that she did in Kelkuk for her eternal salvation. She didn't make it. I'm not God. I don't know. I don't know what she was trusting in. But many people think that they can change the scales to weigh more for them on their side if they just do more good works, some good deeds, somehow do penance that God will look at them more kindly. No. Because if you've sinned, one sin, the chain is clipped and you're bound for hell. And that's why we need a righteousness outside of ourselves because we have nothing within ourselves that could ever obtain to that righteousness. Very, very important. Which shows us that James cannot be talking about that kind of righteousness when he says a righteous man. So what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about a walk, the lifestyle, Of the person. When James said the person is praying has to be righteous, he was referring to the day to day experience of God and the fact that a righteous person is one who is not harboring any known sin in their lives. The Bible adamantly clarifies that someone in that condition should not expect their prayers to be answered. If I regard wickedness in my heart, high handed sins, willful sins, the Lord will not hear. Psalm sixty six eighteen. 18. So what is James talking about to his audience? Who is the righteous man? Well, it's one who has confessed all known sin. John, 1 John 1, 9. If we, are, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay. It's one who walks faithfully in the biblical knowledge they already possess. First John 1 John 1.7, if you walk in the light, as he is in the light. It's one who trusts God to reveal anything that's not right in their lives. Philippians 3.15. And if in anything you are acting in a contrary way, this he will reveal to you. We're back to that vital life Of the Christian, the true Christian that prays unceasingly, constantly, little pop up prayers. Oh, Lord, help me with this situation. While you're at work, you might not even close your eyes, might not even fold your hands, but you're praying, you're always reverting to God and saying, Help me. Lord, I'm trusting you in this situation. Don't laugh. I pray for parking spots. Don't laugh because I pray all the time, all over things, every kind of things, because he's with me all the time. I'm always thinking about him. And that's just a mark of our faith. Another instance of the righteous person is seen in Psalm 1, as well as Psalm 15. They give apt descriptions of the person who is living a righteous life. And so James told them that when they prayed, those who are living like this with this vital union with God, and their personal lives were ones that were in touch with God, that they would be effective prayers and they'd avail much. The NIV does a better job translating this verse when it says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective and the reason I say that is that the word translated effective is really found at the end of the sentence in the Greek and not the beginning. It's a word from which we get our English word energy and from this we see the instance carries the idea that the prayer of the righteous man is powerful as it is effective as a man energetically prays with intention, with perseverance, with persistence that the prayer is powerful and the kind of prayer that will bring about much good. The concept is seen in many places in the scripture. God is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. What's your prayer life like? Are you intentionally praying for things? Specific things that you can see God actually answer your prayer. In Luke eleven five 5-8, what stands out in that passage You're talking about the one who persisted in his prayer, knocking and asking over and over. It's his persistence. Another passage, don't lose heart, pray day and night. Persistent prayer. So James taught his readers that the person who is saved, declared to be righteous based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, And the one who is walking intimately with God, keeping that close watch on their lives, and the one who prays with great intentionality and persistence, the effective prayer, is the one who will see powerful answers to their prayers. How can a professor expect to see answers to their prayers? Unless it is, forgive me, Lord, I'm a sinner, in which he will answer that prayer if it's sincere. So then he goes to Elijah. And we're going to be wrapping up here in a minute. I want you to turn to first Kings. Turn to First Kings with me, and I want to show you a couple of things that we see through Elijah's life that can help us understand how we can be uh, better prayers. Okay? In first 1 Kings 17.1 and in eighteen one, and in eighteen forty one through forty six, and I'll read all these passages so you can mark them. You need to have a little background. Ahab is a king of Israel, but he is one wicked king. He was married to Jezebel, who was even more wicked than he was. Jezebel. You don't want to name your child Jezebel. Okay, That's not a good name. Baal was who they worshipped, and Baal was a Canaanite god of storm, who brought the moisture that ensured good harvests and fertility. So enter Elijah and his prayer to shut down the moisture, all rain, for three and a half years, and you got Elijah going up against Baal, even before Mount Carmel. Three and a half years he prayed. No rain, and there was no rain. It was a direct assault on Baal. So in seventeen one we see the stage being set. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of uh, Gilead, said to Ahab, the wicked king, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He sets the stage. He prays that there'll be no rain. And so for three and a half years, there was no rain. In chapter 18, verse 1, Now, it happened after many days, three and a half years, that's many days, that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. Now, I want to tell you at the outset here that we learn that Elijah, the first lesson that we learned is uh, seen in 1841. Now, Elijah said to Ahab, he went to the king, and he said, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. The shower hadn't come yet. It hadn't come yet. And he's telling him as if it had already taken place. Based on chapter 18, verse 1, God said, I will send rain. So he prayed, believing he believed in what he said implicitly that God would do as he promised even before he saw it. In 1842, so Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. His posture was one of humility. He didn't strut about as though I got this thing wired, I got this Lord, I'm your prophet. He bowed his face down. He was humble. In 43, he said to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And so Elijah said, go back seven times. There we see what? Persistence. He continued on. You know, some of us give up praying for things when God doesn't answer. And we shouldn't. We should continue to pray until he answers us. Recognizing that sometimes his answer is no. That is an answer as well. It's not always the positive answer that signifies that God has answered. Sometimes it's wait. I found wait is his typical answer to my prayers. Wait, wait. Want to see how much I really believe in what I'm praying for? And he answers them. So we see that there was persistent intentional prayer seven times. And then in verse 44, it came about at the seventh time that he said, behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy rain shower does not stop you. It doesn't wash you off the mountain. Okay? So we see here that Elijah believed God not his own servant's eyes who said, it's just like a small fist. It Ain't nothing happening. On the seventh time that he went to look, Elijah sent word to Ahab. It's coming. You better get down off the mountain. In verse 45, finally the answer comes. In a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy shower and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. So Ahab listened to the prophet, got down off the mountain before the heavy shower came and hit. But God answered his prayer. And all the while leading up to this, it says a little while. I don't know how long that little while was, but there was no rain for that little while. So there is faith evidenced here. So in verse 46, I love this. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins, that means he took his, his toga and put it inside and began to ran and he outran Ahab who was in a chariot and he got to Jezreel before Ahab. I just want to say this, in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 it tells us that God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. That power that works within us is the spirit of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And we need to trust him when we pray that he's able to do the impossible, if he so wills. So, can I just ask you, do we live in an overwhelmingly ungodly world such as Elijah? Yeah. So pray. Do we face circumstances that are far beyond our ability to change? <laughs> yeah. Yeah often, right? So pray. Do we sense personal inadequacy? I don't know. Does, does anybody here sense personal inadequacy? Should I show up hands? Have, have, no, don't. We all do. All of us feel inadequate. No matter how old we are. No matter how many times we've accomplished things. We sense inadequacy. That is a good thing. I'm closing with this verse. Turn to 2 Corinthians, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And I'm going to show you a blessed little passage that you can mark in your Bible and be encouraged by when you feel inadequate. Chapter 2. And I'd like to read verses 14 through 16 to you. 2 Corinthians 14, 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death and to the other an aroma from life to life. Now here's the last sentence is what I want you to focus on. And who is adequate for these things? Who's adequate to be that aroma? Who's adequate to be that witness, that testimony to a watching world around us? To those that are being lost or in the process of not trusting Christ? To those that are maybe going to trust in Christ? Who feels adequate for that? I'd say none of us. But then I want you to look over to chapter 3. And verse 4, because here's the answer. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. And that brings my sermon full circle. Trust in God. Whether it be because you have sinned grievously And now you understand you're under a chastening of God and you're near to death. Trust God. Call the elders to pray for you. Whether it be that you're going to a brother or sister and talking to them about their sin. Because in James chapter 5, the last two verses, it says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul that's not talking about eternal salvation because we save nobody's soul. It's talking about he will be restored from his sickness, okay? And it won't be unto death, and he'll cover a multitude of sins. So, whatever it be, we need to stretch ourselves out on God and trust him in all circumstances in life. And in that way, we'll be people of prayer in maybe a new and vital way that you haven't thought of before. And with that, I close the book of James and we will return to it in cross-references from now on. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that it is that we can trust you to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think. And God, we need to ask you for those things We need to pray for those lost ones in our family. We need to extend ourselves out and trust you in faith that even though we don't have the answer to the prayers of the circumstance that we've been praying about and you've answered us, wait, that we can trust that you can do the impossible. We need to extend ourselves, stretch ourselves out on you as a God who loves us and cares for us so much that he sent his only begotten son to die on our behalf. How much more the good things that you can add to that sacrifice of your own son on our behalf. Help us to not lose faith, not to grow weary, but to always trust you. Thank you for this book of James. In Jesus' name, amen.